The following lecture was delivered at the 13th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Dr. Rona Novick will now present her lecture, Loss, Trauma, and Consolation. Welcome, good afternoon, come join us for the cheery topic of lost trauma and consolation. Um, it actually is a very appropriate um, time of year to be talking about this uh, because we have just uh, had Shabbos Nachamu where we, we, uh, we talk about comfort. These are the seven weeks between Tisha B'Av and Rosh Hashanah, when we read the Haftorahs of Consolation. This is also a topic that is personally very fresh to me, in that I am about to celebrate the first Yortzet of my father, for my father this coming Friday. Um, and so I've lived this, uh, but I actually wrote on this topic years ago for Yeshiva University, puts out a, a series called, what is the series called? Mitocha Ohel, where they ask professors in various disciplines in the university to write on various topics. And so I, what I want to do today is to talk about, from the psychological point of view, what are the healthy ways that we deal with lost trauma and we achieve consolation, and how do those dovetail with Jewish practice? Because what has uh, always impressed me is the wisdom of our tradition and of, of our sages in discovering long before psychologists said this is the healthy way to do it, that here's a way that can map out a route through uh, loss and trauma. So loss doesn't have to be about death. Loss is anything that has to do with endings and perceived endings. And I've given you some examples. It could be bereavement, but it could be loss of a job. It could be the ending of a relationship. It could be a loss of status or perceived loss of status. It could be loss of one's home. We, we are hearing stories now out of California about the horrible wildfires and the number of people who have lost homes. And by the way, trauma can come from natural sources as well as from man-made. Can, trauma can be acute or it can be chronic. Obviously, losing one's home in a fire is an acute trauma, but it's also chronic because it's not like, oh, there was, God forbid, a car crash, and now I walked away, and other than replacing my car, I'm, I'm done. That trauma is over. You lose your house, you're now going to be dealing with the trauma of being homeless and not having a place to live and being a vagabond and having to replace all of your stuff, etc., etc. It's going to be an ongoing Traumas can be expected or precipitous. They can happen because we know we've got a lot of planning and we know that this is coming, or they can happen in the blink of an eye. They can be private and localized. They can be one family's sadness, one family's loss and trauma, or they can be an entire community like the fires, like a hurricane, like what's happening in certain areas in Eretz Yisrael now. Um, and they, they, the difference also between communal and individual is sometimes how public or private it is. 
when it happens to one family, people may or may not know. There's a lot of discussion, by the way, in the psychology literature about pregnancy loss, about miscarriage, because it is an area for which we do not have rituals. When we lose, God forbid, a parent, a child, a sibling, we have rituals. We know what to do, and as a community, we know how to comfort. But when someone loses a pregnancy, we don't have a, a, a public way to acknowledge that. And many women who suffer through the experience talk about the loneliness and talk about feeling um, how difficult it is because it's private. And then we have an, a notion of trauma and loss that is direct versus indirect or secondary. Um, after 9-11, I worked with a lot of first responders. Their wives were traumatized. That's a secondary traumatization. None of the wives were in the building. None of the wives were put in harm's way. But they had secondary trauma by virtue of thinking what their spouses had been through and thinking about the future danger of the kind of work that their spouses do. So what I want to do is look at, and we don't have slides, but you have in your handouts, look at the psychological recipe for dealing with trauma and loss. Um, and I've given you there a list of the five ingredients. The first element of this recipe is to normalize and validate. And we'll go through each one of these separate. So the first is to normalize and validate. The second is address basic needs. We have to start with the mundane. Someone who's out of their house needs a roof over their head. That's what the Red Cross is so good at doing. That's what uh, uh, in Israel teams are so good at doing. Then we have to reestablish routine and control. We move on to maintaining and creating connection and belonging because loss, trauma, and tragedy disconnects people. It takes them out of their normal life and out of the normal communal stream, and we have to talk about reestablishing connection. And finally, finding meaning and purpose. Now, I will say that one of the things that happened when the most famous um, public or, or um, broad span writing about trauma and loss was when years ago Elizabeth Kubler-Ross published her books about mourning. And what happened was people started giving report cards about how good you were at dealing with mourning. You know, you didn't do step two, you're behind. You know, how come you're up to step three? You didn't do, you didn't go to anger. You didn't deal with denial. You got to go through that. That, I, I will tell you, one of the greatest disservices of that book was creating what some people saw. I don't think it was Kubler-Ross's intention, but what some people saw as a rigid roadmap that everyone had to pass through. And what we now understand is that although I'm giving you these ingredients for the healthy process of dealing and coping with trauma, not everybody does every step, and they don't all do it in the same order. So these are the ingredients, but how, they, how you mix them up and how you do them is very personal. Now, if we look at the Jewish ways and wisdoms for consolation, we're going to see how these ingredients are directly covered in our methodologies, our minhagim, and our, our uh, mitzvot and our ways of dealing with it. Freud, not the Jewish way, the Freud way. Freud wrote that although mourning involves grave departures from the normal attitude to life, it never occurs to us to regard it as a pathological condition and refer it to medical treatment. In other words, grief and mourning are normal. Oh, very nice, thank you. Grief and mourning are normal um, parts of uh, the response. They happen. Okay. Um, 
we rely on it being overcome after a certain lapse of time, and we look upon any interference with it as useful or even harmful. And so again, the, the psychological notion is first thing we have to do is normalize and validate the response. And in fact, this is very consistent in Jewish thinking. Jewish practice recognizes loss is painful. It's jarring. It's sad. It recognizes that it is normal and healthy to express that sadness. And by the way, we, we may take this for granted growing up with Jewish practice, but there are peoples and cultures and approaches where mourning is not discussed, where sadness is not allowed. Life as usual, go on, just tough it out. You're not allowed to be sad. In fact, we make it very clear. We tear a garment. We show that there has been damage here. We have physical elements. If you go to a shiva house, you see the torn garment. You see evidence. This person is not whole. Something happened to them. Something is missing. We make it very clear. Rabbi Maury Slam, in his classic book on uh, the Jewish way in death and dying, says that at a funeral, we give a eulogy. What is the purpose of the eulogy? It has two purposes. One is hesped. One is to celebrate the deceased, to praise his life. But the other is bechi. The other point of the eulogy is to make people cry. This is a sad time. Judaism recognizes we're going to normalize this. We're going to validate this. We're dealing with loss. Sadness is okay. We can express it. The Gemara in Bracho says the merit of the eulogy lies in the Dilave, which Rashi explains means to raise one's voice in lamentation and anguish so the mourners will weep. Again, we recognize the central role that expressing sadness plays in part of the process here. The Gemara in Shabbos tells us that tears shed by one who uh, laments the grief of a good person, they're counted by God himself, that we are, we're lauded for expressing our grief. Now, I know that right after um, 9-11 uh, in New York, when I was doing a lot of post-trauma work, every place I would go, I would get the same question. Every place, whether I spoke to first responders or school kids or teachers or any place I spoke, I got the same question. And the question invariable was, invariably was, Dr. Novick, am I crazy? Is there something seriously wrong with me? I can't stop fill in the blank. I can't stop worrying. I can't stop being, having sleepless nights. I can't stop thinking about what's going to happen next. I can't. And my biggest job as a, as a clinician was to tell everyone, you do not have post-traumatic stress disorder. Not yet. You have a normal reaction to an incredible trauma. Everything you're experiencing is normal. Just think about what we all went through in our city. It was devastating. When you go to Israel and you, if you were to visit Steyroth, where the bombs are falling and where they have three seconds, five seconds to get to a shelter, if any one of them said, my children are, you know, co-sleeping, all of a sudden they want to be back in my bed. My child who was trained is now having accidents. Is there something wrong? No. It's called you're dealing with trauma. In the moments that we deal with trauma, one of the really important things we have to do is give ourselves permission to not be our typical selves. We are going to be impacted and in some, on some levels impaired and grief is okay. The next part of the recipe is that we have to address basic needs, provide safety, 
and provide material comforts. Um, in, in Israel, by the way, trauma teams, when they go to give the unfortunate news that there has been an event and that someone has been lost, whether it's a soldier, whether it's, God forbid, a child, whether it is a parent, the trauma teams are not made up of mental health professionals. The trauma teams are made up of housekeepers, of professional shoppers, of cooks, of babysitters. They literally, when they knock on your door and say, I have to tell you terrible news, they wrap the family with whatever they need at that moment. That's how they do trauma, um, post-trauma work in Israel. They immediately bring all the social work services with them to take care of all the basic needs of the family. Who's going to pick up the kids from school? Who is going to cook the food? Who's going to, you know, drive the carpools? They take care of all of that, recognizing that in the moment of trauma and loss, what we need first is to take care of basic needs. How do we see in Jewish thought that this is part of our practice? If any of you have ever had the misfortune to sit shiva, you know that the food just starts arriving that the minions just start happening. You literally do nothing. What do you do during your shiva week? You sit. You sit. And everything else is taken care of for you. And if you're blessed with uh, living in a Jewish community where people understand this process, then literally all of your basic needs are taken care of. It is, it's considered actually a mitzvah for neighbors to provide the suda havra, the, the meal after returning from the burial, and the Talmud in Yerushalmi says there's even a curse on the neighbors if you put them in the situation that the mourner has to eat his own food. Shame on you. You have to take care of each other. You have to provide those needs. In the Shiva week, you are literally cocooned at home. You're not supposed to leave your house. Every need that you need is provided for you. Um, it really is an amazing experience to sit there and have everything done for you and everything provided for you and be allowed to be sad and, and deal with that trauma. But we have to move to the next step. It's not enough to just provide basic needs. Then we have to think about how do we maintain social connection and belonging. Because it's not enough to feed people's biological needs. We also have to fuel their social needs. Um, Rabbi Lamb writes again in his book that the sum effect of the visitation during Shiva of having many friends and relatives is the softening of loneliness. It's the relief of the heavy burden of internalized despair. Now, once again, this is the paradigm for Shiva. Unfortunately, other losses, when someone loses a job, when a relationship ends, when someone has been in an accident, there's trauma. We don't have such clear paradigms. People try and some people will try to reach out, and, but we don't have an acceptable paradigm other than, again, a, the Jewish way of thinking about this is that we should connect with people. We should be, do this as a community. Um, the Rabbi Lamb also writes that the mourner begins to talk about his loss, to accept, sorry for the typo, comfort from his friends and neighbors. The isolation from the world and people and the retreat inward now relaxes somewhat. And normalcy begins to return as you approach the end of the Shiva week. And there are some people who have the custom not to visit in the first few days or only close family should come in the first few days and other people should come later. Again, with the, the Jewish thinking about this, that reintegration into the, into the community is going to be the goal, 
that communal connections and social connections are part of how we deal with loss, that it's not something anyone should have to do by themselves. The next element in the recipe, that's really, really important. And in fact, this is a place where Israel and the U.S. differ on how we do this, not from a Jewish point of view, but from the state's approach to how we deal with trauma and terrorism in particular, is the reestablishment of routine and control. If you have ever been in Israel when a pigua, when a, when a bombing or an attack happens, do you see a monument where it happened? Do you see a marker? Do you see any memorialization on this, what used to be sparrows in the corner of, you know, is there anyone that says there was a bomb here, how many people were killed? No, no, no. It's immediately cleaned up and erased. There is no recognition of what was done there. In the U.S., we make monuments, we make memorials, we say this is when, whether it was the bombing in Ohio where there's a monument, whether it was the World Trade Center where there's a monument. Um, we treat things differently and we memorialize places. Um, those of us who are New Yorkers will remember New York in the days post 9-11. To me, the most vivid um, image I have in my head was the posters lining every wall space you could find of, have you seen this person? This person was last seen going into the towers, this person, and just pictures all over everywhere. That's, that's my vision of what New York looked like. In Israel, you don't see that. You, they, they kind of say, and I, I've, I've thought about why is this, and I think because psychologically they're living with too many. Um, it happens too much. They don't want a plaque every place that it happens because it would be overwhelming to think about where it happens. Um, so what do we do in, in Jewish thought and in Jewish practice? The end of Shiva, what's the first thing that happens? You leave your house and walk around the block. You have this symbolic return to the world and to normalcy. And in fact, you can't, you could say, I mean, you could try with your employer. You can say, listen, I'm sitting Shiva three weeks. I don't want to come back to work. I'm not ready. But in fact, the law is one week after that, you got to get out there. You gotta get back, you gotta shop for your own groceries. You have to go back to normal routine, and I think it's a good thing that we are pushed by Jewish law to do that. There's a recognition that for the first month, we are still raw after a loss or a trauma, um, that we have, we need time to get back to where we are, but we return, um, I put this little, you know, handy, my reminder, post-Hurricane Sandy, um, how important it was after the hurricane hit, and, and it hit the, I live on Long Island, it hit the island quite uh, badly. There were many neighborhoods where schools were closed, people without power, and how uh, we, in our neighborhood, most of us were without power from anywhere from seven to ten days, which meant we camped out at whoever's house had power, You'd be at the library during the day because it had power and electricity. You might go home at night, but it was cold, and it was very hard to sleep in your homes. So you really felt like vagabonds. It was the most unsettling feeling not to be able to get back to a routine. And gas stations couldn't get gas deliveries because they didn't have electricity to pump the gas. So many people stopped going to work because we're a commuter community, and you couldn't be guaranteed that you'd have enough gas to get you where you needed to go. So no routines were normal. It was incredibly disruptive 
In the house that we were staying, God bless him, one of the teenage boys, there were three different families at any point in time staying in this house, sometimes a fourth or a fifth. We would kind of in the morning decide who's going where, who's making dinner, who's got food that's spoiling in their house they're going to bring over to cook. Well, he decided, this 15-year-old, he announced, there's Zumba in the basement at 8 o'clock tonight. He started activities, so there'd be a routine in this house, so sometimes the wisdom of kids, right? And, and we did. We would meet in the basement for Zumba at 8. You know, we had, we had our, our plans. There's an amazing video of Seva Adom uh, made by an Israeli kindergarten teacher. Um, I should have brought it. I'm so used to speaking on Shabbos that I don't always have, you know, video aids. I could have done it for today. But you could search it on YouTube. Someone just sent it to me recently to show it again. This brilliant teacher understood the need for routine and control. And what did she do? She created a song for the kindergartners that she taught them all of the words and the music that goes something like this. I'm not going to sing it, don't worry, but Seva Dom, Seva Dom. When the siren rings, my heart goes boom, boom, boom. I, I go to the shelter, clappity, clap, clap, clap. And they, you know, clumpity, clump, I'm running to the shelter. I take three deep breaths. <gasps> I let my heart calm down. Thumpity, thump, thump, thump. Now the siren all clear rings. Yay, we're all happy. And it has all actions that they do. And you see all of these kindergartners happily acting out their Tseva Adom song every time the siren goes off. God bless them. It gives them the sense of ownership and control. They can't control when the siren's going to go off. But it gives them a routine. We know what to do on the way to the shelter, while we're in the shelter, waiting for the all clear sign. It's really quite, quite um, amazing. The last element of the recipe is probably the most challenging and the most difficult. And it can be done at any point in time. It's finding meaning and purpose. It's saying, it's answering the really hard question in trauma and loss and grief of why. Why me? Why now? Why this? How come? We, we have paradigms for accepting that that there are between man and God, that we accept God's purpose and that it is on some level impossible for us to totally understand why God does the things that God does, that he is beyond our reason and knowing. And so sometimes coming to that understanding and awareness is helpful. In terms of some people deal with loss and trauma by saying, I'm going to take care of others. I am going to, there's a family we know of that suffered horrible, horrible, devastating loss in our communities recently and have created a charity in memory of the child that they lost such that other families would be able to celebrate weddings and simchas in a way that they are, unfortunately, not going to be able to celebrate with their beloved and lost daughter. I find it interesting, having said Kaddish for the past year, that Kaddish in no way talks about trauma or loss. It is a declaration of faith. It talks about God's power in the world and our blessing of God and our appreciation of God. That's what we spend a year doing. A year. And, and I 
I have to say, with uh, colleagues and other people who have had the experience of saying Kaddish for a year, going to various minyanim, that, that people talk about the connection to community, that how you see the same people every morning at the 7 o'clock or at the 8.30, you know, the same people every night, and that if there becomes a community. In, in our synagogue, they actually have a a ritual that for at least one of the mourners, Kaddishes, they make an announcement, would all of the mourners please come to one area in the synagogue so that they will say it together rather than peppered throughout the synagogue, just as a way to say you're part of a community that's dealing with loss. Again, a way that our tradition says we recognize that this is not, this is not a, a wound that heals so quickly, but consolation will come from faith, from ritual, and from feeling connected. Um, I'm trying to remember where this quote is from. How come it doesn't say? Uh, Jewish tradition makes certain that we recognize that our health and our redemption comes in looking and moving forward. Tisha B'Av is followed by Tuba'av, a celebration that parallels the festival of the Lord that's referenced in Shoftim and is considered a preface to Elul. Our calendar tells us Yes, there are times of mourning, but they're followed by celebration, which is followed by times of serious reflection, which is followed by celebration, that this is not, no one point is an end in the cycle, that there is a cycle. And when we talk about balancing mourning and consolation, this is Rabbi Lord Sachs. Judaism doesn't command stoic indifference in the face of death, but to give way to wild expressions of sorrow lacerating flesh, tearing out one's hair, that's also wrong. It is, the Torah suggests, not fitting to an am kadosh, to a holy people. In this anti-traditional age with this hostility to ritual and its preference for the public display of private emotion, the idea that grief has laws and limits sounds strange. Yet almost anyone who's had the, had the misfortune to be bereaved can testify to the profound healing brought about by observance of the laws of Avelut, the Jewish laws of mourning. Torah and tradition knew how to honor both the dead and the living, sustaining the delicate balance between grief and consolation, the loss of life that gives us pain, and the reaffirmation of life that gives us hope. We have unbelievable paradigms for how to deal with loss and with trauma and how to move forward. Um, as a psychologist, I have to tell you, I couldn't write a better, uh, a better paradigm for how we do this than looking at the Jewish way in death and mourning. It really is a, a, perfect, a, a perfect example. Yeah. So, so, um, so these Jewish traditions and rituals you know, are great for the first week, month, year of the loss. But as we all know, the pain of losing a parent, a child, a spouse does not go away in a year. It lasts years, not a lifetime. And how one deals with that, the rest of, possibly the rest of the life, or uh, many, many, many years, um, is something that uh, I guess we all struggle with. And I was wondering if you had some comments. I do, and some of them are Jewish and some of them are therapeutic. So from the Jewish point of view, we do have the practice of visiting the grave. We do have the practice of saying prayers at the grave. And, and some people even have the custom of when there's a simcha in the family, when there's a, a wedding or a child born, to actually bring the, I've seen it, I think it's lovely, bring the invitation 
to the kever, to the grave, and place it on the grave for the parent. Such and such got engaged at, at the grave. So that for some people, visiting graves has enormous meaning. We do have the yard site observance once a year where some people take on a fast, some people take on special, you know, certainly there are prayers that one says, you say the Kaddish, you light a candle, other people do a certain mitzvah or do visit the grave on the day. So we have different uh, observances. But I think really the critical um, element of moving forward after loss, trauma, bereavement, is finding meaning, is, dis- is, is determining how do I understand this? How do I see this? What was the purpose of this? Um, not that we, we ever say, oh, it's so great that I had that horrible accident. It taught me this. You know, it's so great that I suffered that loss, that death. This is what it meant. This is the meaning. It's that it's not great and it wasn't wonderful. But how do I grow from it? Where do I go from it? How do I understand this in a, in a way that is healthy and allows me to move forward? And that's a different answer for every person. Different people. I mean, I, I can tell you stories about an elderly gentleman who watched his wife suffer through illness and eventually pass. And after his wife passed and he was dealing with his loss, he said, you know, I realize why she passed because she could not have tolerated losing me. And so the purpose in her going was to save her the pain of having to see me deteriorate and eventually die, and, and she survived me. Now, that, you, you can think that that's crazy, that's the, you know, well, crazy, but that was his meaning. That was the way he understood what happened. I do think, by the way, that another way that people deal with loss is through chesed, is through acts of kindness. We, we lost a wonderful woman in our community several years ago, and when she was ill um, and uh, raising her family, the community all cooked for the family. Lots of meals, lots of, and I was actually the team captain. I was the, for some reason I have the reputation, my husband can tell you, it's not, it's, it's mistaken of being organized. So they asked me to organize all the meals. So I was getting all the emails back and forth about, you know, I'll cook this for Rosh Hashanah, I'll cook that for Yom Kippur, I'll cook this, not for Yom Kippur, I'll cook this for Sukkot, I'll cook for them Tuesday night, I'll make for them. What astonished me is that every single email I got said, thank you for allowing me to help. And when the woman was lost, all of the women who cooked thought about it differently because they thought about how they had been there for this family in their time of need. Not that, again, not that anyone said, oh, it's so great that this happened, so we had a chance to do chesed. But our understanding of it, you know, what people took away was, this was horrible, this was sad, this was very difficult, but it brought out something good in us. That's what I mean by finding meaning. It looked like someone had a comment here. Well, the, the brilliance of the Jewish system is that it's a meaning process. First is the renting of the clothes. So what's, what's very interesting to me, and I agree with you, the challenge of a loss where there is ambivalence, whether it's ending a relationship that should have, it's good that it ended, it wasn't healthy, but there's still a loss, ending a job that was a horrible job and you hated it, but it was still a job, and losing a person who was a negative influence in your life. Very, very challenging to do. Here's what's interesting. In Jewish law, you don't sit shiva any less for a lout than you do for a tzaddik. You, you don't. Jewish law somehow says 
Go through the steps. Wean yourself. Do this. Yes, you'll have to do some work. You'll have to do different psychological work. And I also, you know, my, my daughter-in-law lost her father a few years ago as a young man, and she is a young woman. And I spent a lot of time at that shiva. And her younger sister was then in high school. And I noticed that she was writing constantly in a notebook. And I said, what are you writing in the notebook? Are you journaling? What are you doing? She said, I'm writing down the stupid things people say during Shiva. <laughs> and let me tell you, people say stupid things during Shiva. Like, oh, well, he was pretty old. Oh, well, it's good that he died. He was in pain. Better he go quit. You know, like the stupid things that people say in Shiva. But that, you know, but we do have to come to terms. And probably people say stupider things when it was not a beloved person. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, just from a psychological point of view in general, holding on to anger is not healthy for us. It isn't healthy. Coming to terms with it, being able to say it's justified, I had it, but now I'm letting it go. There's a very funny comic strip that has an, an auditorium, a big auditorium, and the poster up it, above it says, children of healthy parents who raised them well, and there's no one in the seats. Um, you know, it's very easy to, to find fault and, and to hold grudges, but it's not good for us. Yeah. Right. So it's very interesting. And actually, this, this handout I gave you is something that I wrote recently about my experience. I'll share a piece of it with you. Um, different Rebbeim obviously hold differently. I asked my Rav about whether, and, and by the way, my father called my brother his Kaddish. My brother was my father's Kaddish, and my brother owns that and felt he was my father's Kaddish, and I'm, a, you know, it's like, what am I, chopped liver? Um, but I asked my rabbi, who said, you can absolutely say Kaddish. You don't have an obligation, but you can. It's very interesting. It's, it's very interesting that I, I work at Yeshiva University on the men's campus. For many weeks, I was the only woman at Mincha on a men's campus, and the men were lovely they were absolutely lovely. The, the room where, in the base medrash, the big base medrash, is a room that's used on Shabbat for a minion where, where I was davening is usually for women. But during the week, there are no women there. I was the only woman there. But there's a screen set up for the weekend. And they would always, when they saw me coming, they would take out the screen and make me comfortable. And on the days when I couldn't be at the regular minion and I was at a different minion, also, I would always say, you know, it's okay, I can be outside. I, I don't, you don't need to set up a machitza for me. They would say, no, 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 we want you to be comfortable. I found people were incredibly open to allowing me to do what felt comfortable for me. This is, this is what I, I wrote. The Jewish year of mourning has its stages, and I expected that I would grieve most for my father during that first week of Shiva, like you said, a bit less acutely in the month after, and as the year progressed, the ache would dull but the year was, has been different than I expected with unpredictable waves of feeling frequently surprising me. At the funeral, sad and numb, I felt awe as my oldest son, representing the grandchildren, captured the absence of my father perfectly and radiated gratitude and love. Lighting candles the first Shabbat after my father's death, I felt shock realizing when I said the Yehi Ratzon prayer that I no longer had a living father to daven for, to pray for. It was the call to my mother after she returned to her Florida apartment and my father's voice was still on the answering machine saying, you've reached us almost. I felt squeamish about asking my mother to change the message, but on second thought knew that I wanted to keep hearing that voice. 
There was the wedding of our youngest son, a beautiful moment, but also the first time in my life that I was blessed with a simcha and my parents were not physically with me. And there was the magical joy at the birth of our first grandson, who carries my father's name. Months have passed. Jewish practice offers many reminders of loss in the year of mourning. I did not buy new clothing or attend festive events. For me, that's been a very big thing, not to go to weddings and not to go to events. It felt, and, and for me, also a very big thing is not listening to music. And that absence reminded me of my father constantly because he loved all music. I expected the unveiling would be very emotional, and seeing my father's date of birth and death was very emotional. My mom wanted the stone to say, always our teacher. My dad was a consummate teacher. It made the loss very real, but I was fine. The small graveside ceremony with friends and family was terrific. The constant in this year of unexpected ups and downs, the most powerful Jewish morning practice, that of saying the Kaddish prayer in a minion, um, My father referred to my brother, his long awaited only son, as his Kaddish, and my brother lovingly committed to living up to my father's name for him and recently posted on Facebook eloquently about how the experience both honored our father and touched him as a man, a father, and a son. As a daughter, I had options. I've known women who didn't say Kaddish at all, and I've known some who went three times a day. I asked for guidance, what would I do? And I decided to say Kaddish whenever I could pray with a minion and to commit to being in shul all three Shabbat services each week. I welcome Sabbath every Friday night, running to Kabbalat Shabbat after lighting my candles to say Kaddish. I arrived in shul by 8.45 a.m. every Saturday morning, not typical for me, to once again say Kaddish and return for the afternoon prayer. Other days and times I attended minion saying Kaddish whenever I can, but Shabbat became the time I specifically committed to honor my father's memory and to think about his legacy. I didn't make this decision or this choice to fill each Shabbat with sadness because you're forbidden to mourn on the Sabbath. Saying Kaddish, I couldn't help but be focused and reminded of the... um, but, But saying Kaddish grounded me. It connected me to the beliefs, to what I believe in about God, that offered me comfort and meaning. Last Thursday, with some sadness, I went to shul to say the last Kaddish for my father. It was a month ago, in my year of mourning. The next day, I took my father's Movado watch to the jeweler, and I had it resized to fit my wrist. As strange as it felt to feel the smooth, sleek watch on my wrist this Shabbat, it was stranger still to answer the Kaddish of other mourners without speaking the words I'd been saying for 11 months. A friend who lost her father a month before mine likened the final month of mourning to rounding third base. She said there is an intense sense that this last little bit matters so much that you really want to up your game and bring it home. I felt exactly that, an intensity, a need, as I stood silent during the Kaddish. My father had bought the watch that I wore that Shabbat and that I hoped to wear for many to come on the occasion of his retirement. He wanted something to mark the time, to celebrate the years he'd given to his profession, and to signal a new beginning. And putting that watch on, as my year of mourning is winding down, seems fitting. I'm also marking time, and celebrating the years I was blessed with a father who loved and taught and laughed and learned with endless abandon. As for a new beginning, I know the year is ending, but I don't want to let it go. One of those unexpected waves of grief and gratitude and hope and loss seems to have found me this past month, and that's okay. I know I'll be okay. My friends, my family, mothers, siblings, children, 
grandchildren, and beloved husband share the loss and offer ongoing comfort. And I'll wear my father's watch going forward. Whatever beginnings bless my life, I will carry his memory with me. I will wear my father's watch so that even though my time is no longer measured by Kaddish, even though I will shed all the practices associated with mourning, I will mark my time always with memory. Thank you all very much. As you can see, it's an emotional. I didn't realize when I agreed to this talk what, what topic it would be. Final comments or questions, thoughts? Yeah. So the comment is it's very different if your family's not religious and you're not going through this together with your family. My family is extremely diverse, so that my brother's my my brother's saying Kaddish is not what my saying Kaddish would be and God bless my husband who actually was saying Kaddish for my father in a in a routine way. And there were lots of areas of tension and dissension that complicate things. I will tell you that one thing that my family did agree to do over our week of Shiva, which was um, very difficult, but also magical. We had Shiva in three places because everyone wanted Shiva in their community at least one night. And I made a commitment to leave my home and my community and do Shiva at my brother's house, even though it was not the way I would do it. To do Shiva at my sister's house, even though it was not the way I would do it, so that we could be together as a sibling group, even though we had very different views of, of religious practice. And I, I do think that that is a very big challenge. I could do a whole other talk about family stress, and family stress is always worse around times of great celebration and great challenge. Thank you all. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.